Here we are in the Sea of Galilee, and this is a place where Jesus chose to start his ministry. And as we've spoken of previously, right in that direction, facing toward the west, you see that high rocky cliff, that's Mount Arbel. And down below it, that passageway is the very passageway that Jesus would have used when he came from Nazareth here to Galilee to start his ministry. And it's interesting, but not surprising, that he chose to be among the Galileans for the beginning of his ministry. You see, the Galileans at this time were an interesting people. They were different than the Judeans who were down south toward Jerusalem. The Judeans were very religious, but they were very concerned with the law and the observance of the law. And we see that in the Gospels when Jesus goes to Jerusalem and the way that they deal with him. But the Galileans were a little bit different. They were very religious to be sure, but they weren't as concerned with the letter of the law as they were with a passionate hope. That is a messianic expectation. There was, according to my historical studies, a greater messianic expectation up here in the Galilee than there was down in the region of Judea and Jerusalem. The people up here had a passionate hope to be delivered. And so Jesus came and started his messianic ministry right here. And it was a passionate hope. You see, the Galileans were, were a, well, they've been described as volcanic in nature. This is a volcanic region. Uh, when we were on that jetty this morning, we saw volcanic rocks. This is a volcanic region. And the people were sort of volcanic. And so Jesus chose some of his first followers from a, a passionate, volcanic, zealous, hopeful sort of people. I love that. I love that. James and John, the sons of thunder, were just those type. And remember, when, when someone didn't receive their ministry well, they went to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, can we call down fire on these people like Elijah did? <laughs> they were called the sons of thunder. They're a great representation of what the Galilean Jews were like in the first century. They were passionate. They were loyal. They were more concerned with honor than they were with riches. In Judea, they were more concerned with riches, it's been said historically. Up here, it was honor. During some of the Jewish revolts against the Romans, the most zealous of all zealots were Galileans, the greatest fighters in the battle. Jesus wanted these men for his disciples. Passionate, hopeful, zealous, volcanic men. By the way, Judas was not a Galilean. Interesting, huh? A very special people, a very special place. And what Jesus did was he entered into their world. Isn't that what the Lord did? He stepped down out of darkness into our world. He didn't expect them to change theirs. He came to their world. And their surrounding area became a living parable. You see, this is where they worked every single day. James and John and, and Peter, they just all fished here. Matthew, he collected taxes just right over there. This was their livelihood. This was their hometown. Jesus entered in, and everything that prior to that was just normal, mundane experience became a living parable for them. Jesus would come on the Sea of Galilee and say, hey, you're fishing on the wrong side of the boat. But we know how to fish. Jesus, we've been fishing all night. It's hot during the day. The fish go deep. We've been fishing all night. Jesus gets in and says, everything that you've previously known, you're gonna have to surrender if you're gonna follow me. I do things differently. I'm the king and I have a kingdom. And my kingdom is contrary to this world. Cast your nets on the other side of the boat and then you'll have a great fish, a great catch, excuse me. And so we see that Jesus steps into the world and, and it just all becomes a living parable. Now Jesus is gonna do that in our world. He's gonna meet us right where we're at. He doesn't come into your life and ask you to just, you know, make these big tumultuous changes. He just meets you right where you are and then he just wants to start to instruct you. Now, that region right over there is a place called Tabga. And that's where we believe the feeding of the 5,000 took place. And after the feeding of the 5,000, something very interesting happened that you're all familiar with. Hopefully you read it this morning. Matthew 14, open up your Bibles to Matthew 14.
Matthew 14. We have in Matthew 14 the feeding of the 5,000. But we're going to pick up the story after that. We're going to deal with that later on this afternoon. But I want us to look in verse 22. It says, And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. A few things happening in this verse. He's just fed the 5,000. We'll deal with that later. Wonderful story. And he dealt with those people, the multitudes. And now he's wanting to deal with those who are his own. It says, and immediately, meaning with purpose, with something in mind. Jesus is doing something very specific in verse 22. And immediately he made the disciples get in the boat. Now, the word made in Greek is anakazo. It means he forced them to get in the boat. He compelled them with very strong language like a military commander would. He told them to get in the boat. He's finished with the multitudes for a while. He wants to deal with these individual men, these individual hearts. He's doing it with a purpose. And he makes them get in the boat. They don't have any other choice. It's very clear in the Greek. He forces them to get in the boat and go to the other side. Verse 23, and after he sent the multitudes away and he went up to the mountains by himself to pray and when it was evening, he was there alone. Now, we have good reason to believe that when Jesus went to the mountain and prayed, it could have been our bell. Look at our bell right behind you over there. That's the best vantage point over the Galilee. The storms would come ripping down here out of this direction onto the sea and from there Jesus would have a great vantage point. It could have been this mountain. It could have been any one of them. But if I was the Lord, I would have loved Mount Arbel. Look at that. We're going to go up there and pray ourselves in a couple days. Regardless, he made them get in the boat and it was about evening time. Jesus heads up to the mountain to pray. Now he's wanting to teach them a lesson. Remember, they're Galileans. They're strong, they're valiant, they're courageous, they're volcanic. They spent their whole life on this lake. This lake is the most familiar thing in the world to them. Jesus is going to shake it up a little bit. He stepped into their world, but he's going to shake it up a little bit. Next verse, verse 24. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land. A stadia is about 600 feet. So the boat was pretty far out. It was further out than we are right now. And it was battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. That word battered in the Greek is hupatasso. It means that the boat was in subjection to the waves. Hupatasso. To be under or to be in subjection to. Okay, so the boat was sinking. Literally, Jesus is sinking their boat right now. He made them get into the boat, and then a storm came. Are we to believe that that storm was a little dink? That when Jesus gets up on the mountain, he goes, oh no, a storm. I didn't know that was going to happen. <laughs> no, this is a God-ordained storm. Because Jesus is wanting to teach his boys a very important lesson. They could not be a part of the crowd to learn that lesson. Catch that, please. He sent the multitudes away. They could not any longer be a part of the crowd to catch this lesson. Also, they had to obey him to get this lesson. Get in the boat. The Lord deals with us like that all the time. Anakazo, he compels. He commands us to do certain things. We have this horrible thing called free will. Too often we exercise it and we don't obey. The life of the disciples would have been radically different. Perhaps the world would have been different had they not obeyed at this juncture. I want you to think about that in your daily lives. These were just normal guys. These were just fishermen. Jesus stepped into the world and they were going to impact the whole world for thousands of years to come. And the impact that they would have on the world was dependent upon their obedience that they would have in this moment. Brothers, sisters, that is true of us. And just like this lake was their world, Jesus is doing things in your world, your workplace, your family. And I'll tell you very frankly what he's doing right here. He's sinking their boat. He's sinking their boat. Everything that was comfortable to them, he's sinking it right now. That was a God-ordained storm. The boat was in subjection to the waves. Literally in the Greek, it was under the waves. 
Verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Fourth watch of the night. They got into the boat just before evening. In that time, the night was divided into four sections. The first watch was from 6 to 9 p.m. The second watch was from 9 to midnight. The third watch would be from midnight until 3 a.m. The fourth watch of the night was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. These guys have been in the boat for at least nine hours. Nine hours these guys have been in the boat while the boat is in subjection to the waves. If they wanted to get home, they had to paddle that way or sail that way. But the wind is coming this way. There's no way for them to get home. They're out on the boat at night. The boat is in subjection to the waves. And Jesus purposefully, from his kind heart, leaves them there for nine hours. You see, there was a breaking process that needed to happen in the heart of the disciples. They were awesome men, valiant men. They were Galileans. They were sons of thunder. They were volcanic. And Jesus loved that. That's why he chose them. But there needed to be a harnessing of that power. Do you understand that? You understand what it means to be meek? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And these men were going to inherit the earth in the sense that they would be the apostles that were sent and in the kingdom. They'll play a role. Blessed are the meek. Meek means power in subjection. Power in submission. In Europe, if you go to the horse races and a certain horse wins, they call it the meek horse. The meek horse. It, it wasn't the weak horse. It was the meek horse. It was the horse that was the fastest and the most powerful, but most submitted to the one holding the reins. There's a key. That horse was the one that was most submitted to the ones holding the reins, or the one holding the reins, the meek horse. Jesus was wanting to get the reins of these men's lives. And he wants to do that in our lives. And to do that, sometimes he's got to shake us up. We understand that, don't we? He's going to step into our world, but sometimes he shakes it up a bit. And he waited until the fourth watch. Now, you've heard the saying, it's darkest before the dawn. Sometime between 3 and 6 a.m., after nine hours of doing everything that they knew what to do, Jesus finally comes. The reason he waited so long is because it took them that long to exhaust themselves of all their know-how, of years of fishing on this lake, all their own resources, all their ingenuity, all the possibilities had to be exhausted by them before Jesus came. It's been said, when you get to the end of yourself, you get to the beginning of God. So many times in the Christian life, that's the failure, is we never really get over self. And yet Jesus said, just a few miles north of here, and we'll go there in a few days, at a place called Caesarea Philippi. He said, if you want to come after me, you've got to pick up your cross and deny yourself. So often we never get to the end of ourselves and so we never really get into God. Jesus wanted to make sure that they got into who he was. And so they ordained a storm. God ordained a storm for them rather. And he comes in the final hour walking on the very circumstances that seem so threatening. Think about that. It seemed so threatening. It seemed like the end of the world. It seemed like there was nothing they could do. And Jesus just comes walking on those very circumstances. That's potent for our lives. You know, it kind of depends on your perspective. Who's bigger? Jesus or your drama? Jesus or your drama? Well, it depends on whether you're walking in the spirit or the flesh. If you're in the flesh, the drama just seems insurmountable. When you're in the spirit, well, then you've got a big God perspective. You know what I mean? And he just comes walking on the very circumstances that seem so threatening to others. Verse 26, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, It is a ghost. Uh, the Jews had some interesting ideas during those times about water and the spirit world. We won't get into it, but they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out for fear, verse 27, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Remember our story of Joshua? We just studied Joshua for nine months. Jesus is saying the same thing here that he said to Joshua, take courage. 
don't be afraid. I am with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. It seems like you're sinking. It seems like everything is falling apart. You don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. You've gotten to the end of yourself. And every way that you thought you were great and valiant, you are now weak and vulnerable. Don't worry. I'm here. Oh, I love the Lord. Verse 28, and Peter, a perfect representation of a first century Jewish Galilean. And Peter answered and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. There's a courageous Galilean. If it's you, Lord, I want to walk on the water to you. Verse 29, and Jesus said, come on, Peter. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Bible teachers love to pick on Peter. I do. I identify with Peter a lot. He's easy to tease. He makes some of the biggest blunders in the New Testament. But the man walked on water. There was not another human in the history of the world that said, Jesus, I want to walk on water. Joshua was a man such as that. Remember when that sun was rising this morning when we were on the Sea of Galilee and there were those clouds and, and you could see the movement of the sun. You know what I mean? Really, it's the earth moving, but from our perspective, the sun. Imagine Joshua. Sun, stand still. Wow. And Peter. Hey, Lord, if that's you, I want to walk on the water to you. What are you asking the Lord for in your life? You have not because you ask not. So oftentimes we experience just a little bit of what God has for us because we just ask for a little bit. We just settle for less. We're just consumed with self. We haven't come to the fourth watch. We're not in subjection to the wind and the waves yet. We never obeyed Jesus to get in the boat, whatever it might be. Well, Peter obeyed the Lord. He got in the boat. And what did that get him? A storm. Welcome to Christianity. <laughs> Romans 5 says, We rejoice in tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, yeah, nine hours in a sinking boat. And perseverance, proven character. Proven character, absolutely, the disciples after walking with Jesus. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. And Peter walked on water. Next verse, though. But seeing the wind, he became afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out and said, Lord, save me. We've talked about that lesson before. It's not complicated, but it's poignant. He got his eyes off of Jesus and onto the circumstances and he started to sink right down into him. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a big one. Romans 12 tells us to fix our gaze on the author and the perfecter of our faith, Christ Jesus. As long as Peter had his eyes on the person of Jesus Christ, he walked on water. He was above the circumstances. He transcended those things. He was not consumed by those things. He was like the Apostle Paul who said, I do not consider these present sufferings worthy to be compared with the glory that we shall see. The wind and the waves, not even worth talking about in light of Jesus Christ and his promises and his plan for us. But when Peter got his eyes off of Jesus and onto the wind and on the waves, those same circumstances that he was a few moments before triumphant over and victorious over because of the command of the Lord, he began to sink down into him. And even at that moment, Jesus is still Jesus. He says, Lord, save me. Shortest prayer in the Bible. Verse 31, and immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. Jesus saved him pulled him up out of that sinking water, took him out the miry clay, so to speak, brought him on the rock, so to speak. Jesus just lifts him up out of those circumstances. And then Jesus instructs him because the Lord always wants to teach us. And he says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You know, so often the Lord's gonna ask us questions. That's why it's important to listen to the Lord. That's why it's important that our prayer life is not a monologue, but it's a dialogue. Because in your times of prayer and Bible reading, the Lord will ask you questions. And in the midst of this tumultuous situation where he was sinking, the Lord said, why did you doubt? He really wanted Peter to think about it. Peter, why did you doubt at that moment? What happened in your heart that you stopped believing in me? What changed from when you said, Lord, let me walk on water until you began to sink in the water. He wanted Peter to think about it. Are you listening to the Lord? 
Because he's asking questions. If you're his, he's asking questions. Just as I ask questions of my son Isaiah, my daughter Daisy, because I'm concerned about their life and I want to know what's happening in their hearts. He's asking questions of you. On this trip, he's going to ask you a whole lot if you'll listen. And they're real good. And then it says in verse 32, and when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Now I love that detail. The Lord waited to stop the wind until he escorted Peter back to the boat. Now that's real good. Because he could have just caused the wind to stop right then. But he wanted Peter to know what it was like to walk with Jesus through the storm. He wanted Peter to know what it felt like to have his little hand held by the king of the universe. He wanted to walk him through the storm. He certainly could have calmed it right then and there, but he wanted to walk him through it. That's beautiful. Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age, Jesus said. Walked him through the storm, onto the boat, and then he calmed the wind and the waves. Now, what happened next in verse 33 is very important. Don't read it yet. What happens in verse 33 never happened previously, ever in the history of the world. You see, we believe in the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Amen? We believe in his eternal existence. In the beginning was a word. And the word was with God. The word was God. In the beginning, Jesus always has been. And so Jesus has always been worshiped. Jesus has always been worshiped. When the angels were created, they worshiped Jesus Christ. When Jesus came in the flesh, the Magi came from the east. And it says in Luke chapter three or so, they worshiped him. Jesus hasn't been worshiped since he was an infant until this moment on the Sea of Galilee. The first time he will be worshiped as Messiah in the midst of his ministry is right here on the Sea of Galilee in a boat very much like this. Verse 33, and those who were in the boat worshiped Jesus saying, you are certainly God's son. They didn't recognize him in such a way before the storm. It says in Mark chapter six, in the parallel account, that they went into that storm because they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves and the fishes. Jesus fed 5,000. He multitude, he multiplied, excuse me, the bread and the fish. But that didn't really teach the disciples about who he was. They saw his power. But what really taught them about who Jesus was, was when they were in the storm. And when Jesus took the hand of Peter and walked him through the storm. This is the first time when the disciples ever worship Jesus Christ for who he is and say, certainly you are the son of God. You see, it's the storms in our life that bring us the closest to who he is. That's why it's so important to obey the Lord and to listen to the Lord in the midst of the storm and to not always take the easy way out to not always be looking for the path of least resistance and to recognize the sovereignty of Jesus Christ in your daily life. You see, to them, it was just another boat ride. To you, it's just another day at work. Just another day at the office. Just another day here or there, wherever you are. But to Jesus, it's an opportunity for you to know him more. The disciples would never forget that. They would never look at a boat the same way again. They would never be on these waters and see him the same again. Every time Peter ever came out again, he'd say, I walked on these waters. I sank in these waters. And then I walked with Jesus in these waters. And after that, I worshiped him. What's the Lord trying to do in your life? What's he speaking to you about? Your life, your workplace, your surroundings are a living parable. Tune yourself to hear the voice of the living God and he'll reveal himself. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, guys, here we are. This is an incredible spot. We are just outside the modern city of Nazareth 
a portion of which is built on the ancient city of Nazareth. You have to understand that the ancient city of Nazareth was, was tiny. In fact, Josephus mentioned over a thousand villages in the area of the Galilee in his historical writings, and he never even mentioned Nazareth. It was so insignificant, so small, so off the map. That's why when the Pharisees and the religious leaders down in Jerusalem heard that people were claiming the Messiah came from Nazareth, they said, can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, it was just way off the map. And behind us there, as we were driving in, you saw that church with a big black roof on it. Um, that is a church that's built over the first century remains of the ancient village of Nazareth, where we know without a shadow of a doubt, our Lord was from. That's where he was born, not where he's born. He's born in uh, Bethlehem, of course, but afterwards where he grew up and where he would have spent time with uh, Mary and Joseph and the others. And there was a synagogue there where he taught. And we're going to look at that in just a minute. But this cliff that we're on right now is possibly the cliff that the inhabitants of Nazareth attempted to throw Jesus off when he said some things in their synagogue that they didn't agree with. I mean, if you're going to throw someone off a cliff, this would be the perfect place to do it, right? <laughs> Nazareth just right there. Now, there was some messianic expectation around Nazareth. The Hebrew word for branch is nazet, nazet. And look, it says in Isaiah chapter 11, I'll just read it to you or it, nazer, excuse me, the Hebrew word for branch is nazer. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Nazer is a Hebrew word for branch. Nazareth is just another consonant away from that. It's where we get the name Nazareth for this city, from the Hebrew word for branch, nazer. And so there was a degree of messianic expectation concerning this place and then it goes on to talk about the messiah and the spirit of the lord will rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and strength the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the lord so isaiah some 700 years before the birth of jesus mentioning the branch and nazareth being named after it there is an arab tradition that was first taught by the muslims that Jesus jumped off of this cliff when the inhabitants of the village were seeking to throw him off the cliff. The Bible doesn't say that. There's Arab Christians today in Nazareth that still believe that tradition because they don't read the Bible. <laughs> That's why it's so important to read the Bible. It was started by the Muslims. Jesus jumped off the cliff. Of course, they believe he survived it. He hit the ground and ran. He was Jesus. He could have done it. But the Bible doesn't say that. Let's look at what the Bible has to say. Turn to, if you would, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. At the beginning of Luke chapter 4, we have Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And after that, we have Jesus going to the Galilee and starting his ministry. And after beginning his ministry, he spent time in Capernaum. He performed a lot of miracles in Capernaum. He came back to Nazareth and he taught in the synagogue and he taught something very incredible and he got quite a reaction. And that's what we're going to look at right now. So Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And when he came to Nazareth where he been, had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the, stat, on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. Now, then it would have just been a scroll. It would have been a scroll of Isaiah. And in the synagogues during those times, different rabbis would be allowed to read from the scroll. And Jesus was a rabbi. He grew up in that town. Everybody knew him in that town. But he had come of age, 30 years old, when he could become a rabbi. He had gone and started his ministry in Galilee, and he was performing miracles. And they had heard about it in Nazareth. They heard about the miracles in Capernaum. They heard about the teachings. He's back for church, so to speak, in his home church, his home synagogue, on the Sabbath. And he's invited to read from the scroll. 
and he opens it up to the portion in Isaiah where we have Isaiah 61. And he begins to read in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Notice then that there is a period in your Bible at that point. I want you to keep that in mind. Jesus began to read from Isaiah 61 and then he stopped at a strategic point. He stopped really at an unnatural point. No other rabbi in Israel would have stopped at that point of Isaiah 61 because it wasn't a natural break right there. They would have continued right on. Now, he's reading there a messianic prophecy. People would have understood it to be a prophecy about the Messiah. Look what happens in verse 20. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and all the eyes of all those in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. He came back into his hometown and he just said in undisputable terms, I am the fulfillment of Scripture. I am the one spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. I am Mashiach. I am the Messiah. There was no question as to what he was saying, that the time of the Messiah had come. Today, this Scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. What? That he was, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, he was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor, that he was sent by God to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set free those who were downtrodden, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That time had finally come upon Israel. O come, O come, Emmanuel, to rescue captive Israel. That moment was being fulfilled in their midst at this city behind us, Nazareth. Now, look what happens next. We're going to return to that prophecy. Remember, I told you to note the period. Verse 22. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, isn't this Joseph's son? Wait a minute. We know this kid. This kid grew up in this town. This is Joseph's son. He, he's been doing carpentry with his dad for the last 30 years. This is amazing. They're very excited about it at the outset. But then look what Jesus does. He begins to provoke them knowing their hearts. And Jesus said to them in verse 23, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. He knew that in their hearts there was now an expectation of the miraculous. He knew that, that they wanted to see some signs and wonders because they heard what happened in Capernaum. Verse 24, and he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. He's proclaiming to them their own hearts before they even know it. Doesn't the Lord do that with you and I? You know those Holy Spirit moments where the Lord reveals your heart to you and you're like, oh, wow, really? You know those moments? We've had some on this trip, haven't we? We know those moments. He's revealing their heart to them before they even know it because the Gospels say that Jesus knew the hearts of men. Now in verse 25, he says, I tell you the truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land. Now, we spoke about that the other day from, the Mount, Car from Mount Carmel. That famine and Elijah and the showdown with the prophets of Baal and his praying in the rain, the sound of the great shower that he heard in the spirit. Now, Mount Carmel is right over there. It's that mountain directly at the end of my finger. You can even see a little white structure on the very farthest and highest peak away. That's Mount Carmel where we were standing the other day. Jesus is referring to that event right here from Nazareth. And when he said that, everybody could have looked over and went, yeah, yeah, we remember that story. We remember Elijah and the drought, and we remember all that. 
And then it says in verse 26, And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elijah the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Then look what it says. And all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. Why were they filled with rage? Jesus spoke about how Isaiah did, uh, excuse me, Elijah did incredible miracles during his time. But not every leper in Israel was healed during his time. Why? Not everybody had faith. Didn't Jesus say, when I come again, will the Son of Man find faith? Jesus would return to Nazareth a year after this interaction that we're speaking about. He'll return here and it says in uh, Mark chapter 6, he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Not that he could not do many miracles there, but he did not do many miracles because of their lack of faith. They simply chose not to believe in his identity as a Messiah. He knew their hearts that there was disbelief and wickedness in a divided heart. Now, doesn't James chapter 1 say, concerning wisdom is the context, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask, and God will give to him. But let that man ask without faith or, or without doubt. For the man that asks with doubt in his heart is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Let that man expect that he will receive nothing from the Lord. Why should the Lord do if we say in his face, I don't believe you? It's not that our faith does the work. We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in Jesus Christ. But if we look him in the face and say, I don't believe your ability or your identity, why could we expect him to do anything then? The Bible says he won't. He came to Nazareth a year after revealing their hearts, and it says he did not do many miracles here because of their lack of faith. And that's why they were enraged now in the synagogue, because he revealed their own hearts through expounding upon the scriptures. And so it says in verse 29, And they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. And we think that this might very well be the spot. This is the brow of the hill. This is the only place where there's really a steep cliff that would be of consequence if you were to throw somebody off. I mean, you can imagine if I took one more step backwards. It's consequential. This might be the very spot. Notice what our Lord did. Verse 30, But passing through their midst, he went his way. It was miraculous to be sure, but he wasn't showing off. There is that Arab. It has its roots in a Muslim rumor. False idea contrary to the Bible that Jesus jumped off the cliff here and ran away. Bible doesn't say that. It says he walked through their midst. They dragged him up here to throw him off and there came a moment where Jesus did assert his authority, probably looked him in the eyes and just walked right through the crowd and walked away from Nazareth. Man, that was a bummer for Nazareth that day. That was a bummer for Nazareth. He walked right through their midst. He did not do many miracles here because of their lack of belief. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? The Lord can do all things. Church, we ought to be a church that believes. We ought to be a church that believes that our God is a God that opens the eyes of the blind, that unstops the ears of the deaf, that heals the legs of the lame, that binds up the brokenhearted, that sets the captives free. I mean, I just believe that Jesus still does these things. And just the other day, we were in Capernaum where the majority of his miracles happened. I believe he's the same God today as he was then. And I believe he wants to do in Carpinteria the things that he did in Capernaum. I believe that he does. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? Now, return to his reading from Isaiah, if you would. Verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he stopped, and in verse 20 it says, and he closed the book. Now as I mentioned, that was an unnatural place to stop and roll up the scroll. I want you to turn to the scroll of Isaiah now. Isaiah 61, the portion from which Jesus read that day. We're leaving Luke 4. We're going to Isaiah 61. 
Isaiah chapter 61. There were no chapter breaks then. Remember, by this time, every Jewish male had the whole Old Testament memorized. So when they wanted to find a place in the Bible, they had no problem doing it. We need chapters. We appreciate chapters and verses. Isaiah 61, this is a portion that Jesus read from. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Stop. Right there is where Jesus stopped in the synagogue here in Nazareth that day. He stopped right there. Now notice that there is a period in the New Testament, there's a comma here. In the ancient Hebrew, there was not periods or commas. And in the Greek, in the original of the New Testament, there weren't periods or commas. But it's very clear where they were to belong. That was not the end of a sentence, it wasn't the end of a thought. And yet our Lord, when speaking here in Nazareth, stopped at that place. Why? Because that was the part of the ministry of Messiah that was going to be fulfilled at that moment in history. Proclaiming release to the captives, healing the favorable year of the Lord to bring good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, freedom to the prisoners, the favorable year of the Lord. God draping himself in humanity to meet humanity in their brokenness. That was what Messiah was coming to do in Israel and for the world in the first century. Now that is not the whole ministry of Messiah. There is more that is to come. Messiah will also come to judge the earth. He came the first time as a suffering servant. He will come the second time as the ruling king. He came the first time to die on behalf of sinners. He is coming the second time to judge sinners. The scriptures are very clear. In fact, the very next breath of Isaiah says so. Look what it says. And the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus didn't read that part. Though it is a completion of the sentence, he purposely paused prior to that because the day of vengeance had not come. The ancient rabbis had an interpretational problem with the ancient scriptures. There were two different facets of Messiah that were so clearly revealed. There was a Messiah that would suffer on behalf of his people. There was a Messiah that came humbly. There was a Messiah that came down Mount Zion as Zechariah, or down the Mount of Olives as Zechariah 9.9 speaks of, humble, lowly, seated on a donkey. But then there's a Messiah that would come on the white horse as a conquering king. And so many of the ancient rabbis believed and still believed in two Messiahs. One who would come humbly to suffer and to serve, and one who would come in victory to conquer and to rule. And so they taught there must be two Messiahs. It's not two Messiahs, it's two comings. And Jesus in the synagogue here in Nazareth that day was speaking of his first coming and then he rolled up the book because the time of the second coming was not yet. The very next breath of Isaiah 61 verse 2 speaks of the second coming. And the day of vengeance of our God. He already has extended mercy to humanity. He is still extending mercy to humanity. The New Testament says the Lord is not slow about his promises concerning his second coming, but desires that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. In his mercy he delays, but when he comes again, he will come with the vengeance of God. And then after that second coming is the millennial kingdom. And Isaiah 61 goes on to speak about that. The kingdom of God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. That is the fulfillment of the kingdom of God ultimately going to be made manifest in the millennial kingdom. But we have been given a foretaste of the kingdom of God. So this experience is ours right now. The ultimate fulfillment of it is in the millennial kingdom. But we as members of the kingdom here and now are given a foretaste. Don't we love when we're given the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting? 
a garland instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning. These things are already partially ours in the person of Christ. They will be fully realized worldwide when he comes to establish his kingdom. Now, the second coming of Jesus Christ is at the end of the tribulation period. There's a battle that unfolds at the end of the tribulation called the Battle of Armageddon. The reason that it's called the Battle of Armageddon is because it is located in a place called the Valley of Armageddon. This behind me is the Valley of Armageddon. The valley that we're looking at right now, ancient name, the Valley of Jezreel, is the Valley of Armageddon. Napoleon overlooked this valley and said, this is the greatest battlefield in the history of the world. And it's always been a battlefield because the Via Maris ran through here, a, a main vein of exchange from the north to the south in the Orient. And so whoever controlled access through this valley controlled trade from north to south in the then known world. And so it's always been a place of battle, a place of conquest, a, a place of strategy. Always has been. And Israel's known battles here. And Israel is going to know one more battle, the Valley of Armageddon, will once again be ablaze with battle at the end of the tribulation period. Now, go to Revelation 19. Revelation chapter 19. Last night we were talking about the Battle of Magog from Ezekiel 38 and 39 and some of those details and the Russians asserting themselves in the region and, and uh, we've been talking a little bit about that. Now, some of you have asked me this morning, when does the Magog invasion happen? When does Ezekiel 38 and 39 happen? Is that the same as the Battle of Armageddon? Well, I'll tell you this, we just don't know for sure. We don't know the timing of it. There are uh, excellent Bible scholars who believe that the battle of Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a component of the final conflict, the battle of Armageddon, that it takes place at the same time. It's synonymous with a component of, that it's part of the battle of Armageddon. There are others that believe it happens in the middle of the tribulation period. There are others that believe it happens just after the rapture of the church. Others that believe it happens before the rapture of the church. We can't be dogmatic about it. There's good arguments on all sides. We can't be uh, sure about it. I've convinced myself of every position at different times, so I'm not sure. Right now, this is the part, this is the uh, outline that I'm convinced of. I think that the Magog invasion could happen almost any day. I think that we will probably see it while we're here on earth. And then will come the rapture of the church. And then comes the tribulation period, ends with the battle of Armageddon, which ends with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Please do not confuse the rapture of the church with the second coming of Jesus Christ. In the rapture of the church, we are caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the sky. In the second coming of Jesus Christ, he comes with the clouds with you and I and sets down on earth at the second coming. Two different events. In the rapture, we go up to meet the Lord. and the second coming, we come down with the Lord. And we'll look at that passage in just a moment. So we have the rapture of the church. Somewhere in there, the battle of Magog from Ezekiel 38 and 39. Seven years of tribulation. The battle of Armageddon the second coming of Jesus Christ, the millennial kingdom, his reign on earth for a thousand years, and then the new heaven and the new earth, ultimate eternity. Okay, you guys got that? Battle of Magog somewhere, rapture, tribulation, battle of Armageddon, millennial kingdom, new heaven, new earth. Now in Revelation 19, we're going to see the coming of the Lord in the midst of the battle of Armageddon. When he comes, it's right here. It's right here. You guys will all be here again. You guys listening to this at church, you might have missed this trip, but you are coming here. Watch, we're going to see it right here. Revelation chapter 19. 
We're in heaven in Revelation chapter 19. That's the context. It's very clear from verse 1. And we'll pick it up in verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. And it's the sound of many waters. And it's the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. We're the bride. Notice that we're in heaven. Notice the battle of Armageddon hasn't happened yet. It happens at the end of the tribulation period. We're not here for the tribulation. What groom wants his bride to go through tribulation? Not a single one. Certainly not our Jesus. And here we are in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse 8. And it was given to her, the bride, the church, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is a righteous acts of the saints. I want you to remember that fine linen, bright and clean. Verse 9. And he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. This is John receiving the revelation. And he's receiving it from the angel, remember. And he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All Bible prophecy has to do with the person of Jesus Christ, is what the angel said. And so all of our worship should be directed at Jesus. Now look at verse 11, the second coming of the Lord. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. This is the day of vengeance of our God. Spoken of in Isaiah 61, verse 2, 700 years before the coming of the Lord. Not spoken of by Jesus in the first century in Nazareth. He rolled up the scroll before it because it's now. It's at the end of the tribulation period. His coming to the battle of Armageddon. Verse 12, And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Who's that? And the armies, look, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Who was clothed in fine linen, white and clean? That's you and I. That can't be anybody else. That is the church of Jesus Christ. He comes on the big white horse, the Cavallo Blanco, and we come on little white horses. Oh, I love it. Get your riding boots on. Verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's no question anymore. Now remember, by the time of the end of the tribulation period, God has done everything he could possibly do to convince humanity to receive his mercy. He put them in the garden and it was perfect. They rebelled. He gave them a nation with leaders. They rebelled. He draped himself in humanity. They rebelled. He gave 2,000 plus years of room, of time, where he's drawing humanity by his loving kindness. In the shadow of the cross, they reject. So then he brings tribulation where there's signs in the sky, where there's earthquakes and signs in the sea, where he's pouring out his judgment, and there's an angel flying around the sky saying, Repent! And people still refuse to repent. And it says that all the nations in the book of Zechariah, at this moment, the valley of Armageddon, the battle of Armageddon, are gathered against Jerusalem. He's given humanity every opportunity to repent. Now there's no option left for him but to judge them. When they reject mercy, judgment is left. He came the first time to extend mercy and grace. He's coming now to judge as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And notice that every king of the earth is into what's about to unfold right here. 
It's no surprise to us that there will come a day where every nation in the world is gathered against Jerusalem. We already see it. Almost every nation in the world, almost to a T, every nation in the world is already gathered against Jerusalem. The stage is already set. And now we pick it up in the next verse, verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come and assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and all men, both free and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled, look, to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. So at the end of the tribulation period, all the armies of the world, or at least a representative portion thereof, are gathered here in the valley of Armageddon under the leadership of Antichrist to come against Jerusalem, Zechariah 12 and 14 tell us. It's already happening. They're already doing it politically. It's going to come a day where it happens militarily. And when Jesus begins to come, and remember what Matthew 24 says about his coming, that it's like lightning that flashes from east to west. Every eye will see. He comes with power and glory in the clouds. Nobody's going to miss it. And when he starts to come to this valley, can you imagine, look at the valley behind you. Look at that expanse of land. Can you imagine a representative portion of all the armies of the world and the Lord comes in the clouds? And under the leadership of Antichrist, it says right there in Revelation 19, when he comes, all the armies of the world turn against him and those with him. Now look at the victory of our king. Verse 20. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." And here we are, unbelievable. We are overlooking the very place where this will happen. Brothers and sisters, this ought to do one thing in our heart. First of all, it ought to give us hope because the world is a scary place right now. But the story's not over. It is not over. Remember that he will right every wrong and everything that was done in secret will be revealed from the rooftop. Remember that. And he is giving people room and opportunity to repent. And so now is the time to preach the gospel. Men and women, you have been given the keys that unlock the gates of Hades. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In the next verse, he said to Peter, and I will give you the keys. And we as members of the church have been entrusted with the keys. The stage is already set for the battle of Armageddon, but we know it's at least seven years away. And so what are we doing with our time right now? We have got to be about the Father's business. We will live life. We will have babies. We will surf. We will have careers. But at the beginning of the day and the end of the day, we have got to be about the kingdom of Jesus Christ because he wants to save men. The last thing he wants to do is judge men and women here in the Valley of Armageddon. That's why he died for them 2,000 years ago. That's why he pronounced right here in Nazareth that this was the favorable year of the Lord. Today is the day to repent. That day is the day of vengeance of our God. But this is the day of his loving kindness. Let us be those who would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you that we have the incredible opportunity to stand on this mountain behind Nazareth overlooking the valley of Armageddon and to look into the future because of your prophetic word. And we just ask that, Lord, as we've looked into your word, you would look into our hearts. You knew the hearts of those in the synagogue in Nazareth that day. You knew the unbelief that was there. You knew the apathy that was there. We ask the Holy Spirit, you would come and deal with unbelief and apathy in our hearts, Lord. 
We want to be people who are full of faith and fervent and on fire for you in these last days. Lord, help us to be such men and women. Holy Spirit, come upon us on this mountain today. Come upon us today, Holy Spirit, wherever we are, to make us good representatives, diligent stewards of your grace in these last days that everyone would know that you are the Savior and the coming King. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.